Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Anika Zubair, and welcome back to the next episode of the Customer Success Channel podcast, brought to you by PlanHat, the modern customer platform. This podcast is created for anyone working in or interested in the customer success field. On this podcast, we will speak to leaders in the industry about their experiences and their definitions of customer success and get their advice and best practices on how to run a CS organization. Today, we are speaking to Jennifer Rose Kramer, who is no stranger to the Customer Success Channel because she is the new VP of Customer Success at PlanHat. Prior to her new role at PlanHat, she was at SAP, where she was the VP of Customer Transformation and Customer Engagement and Experience. And prior to that, she was Senior Director of Customer Success at Salesforce. A large part of her career was spent at Salesforce, where customer success originated, and today she will chat with us all about churn mitigation, lagging indicators, unhealthy customers, and if all churn is really bad. Is it okay to let your customers actually churn? Well, today we will get Jennifer's take on what to do with customer churn. Welcome, Jennifer, to the podcast. I'm really excited to have you today, especially because you are obviously the VP of Customer Success at PlanHat, which is really exciting. I know you're new to the role. But before we get into the topic of today, I would love if you could please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. How did you get into customer success and how did you land at PlanHat? Thank you so much for having me. A longtime fan and listener of this podcast channel. So I'm really excited and honored to be here. I am new to Plan Hat, new ish. It's been two months, feels like two years for the amount of ground I've covered in two months for sure. But truly, truly a, a dream job for me. So I've been in the customer success world for a while, for I know I'm going to age myself, but like 15 years, um, started, you know, out of college as a consultant, as like a management consultant, which I actually think has a lot of connectors to the customer success world, but then spent 13 years at Salesforce and in the Salesforce kind of ecosystem because I was a customer for a little bit. And just like learning from the best of the best, I feel like in customer success back when it was like really, really new leadership like Maria Martinez, who I just respect so much. And I learned so much from spent a few years at SAP, helping them transform their on prem to cloud customer success model. And, you know, so I just I have a lot of passion about customer success. And my journey in different roles that kind of center around customer success without being a direct path to the VP of customer success, if that makes sense. So I think like all the different angles that I've seen and done, I think rounded me out to this job, which is which is truly just like a dream job for me. Awesome. I love hearing that. And again, congratulations on the new role. But I also want to talk about a little bit of a difference because you've come from larger organizations, like you just said, Salesforce, who is kind of known to have started customer success and even SAP. And now you're into a startup. What's the biggest difference that you see? And what's kind of been your biggest challenge in these first few months? <laughs> It's such a good question. And and a lot of people ask me, like, why did you go to a startup after being such a big company? And, and I think like, one of the biggest things, and I was warned about this, by the way, before I took the job is like at a big company like Salesforce, or like SAP, 
you have people to do a lot of different roles and different things, right? Like you have head of enablement, you have a whole team for onboarding, you have a whole team that just looks at health scores. Like you have teams of people to do everything. And at a startup, as you all know, you do it all. You, I, I mean, the amount of mileage that I cover in a day, everything from selling to, you know, happy customers, not happy customers, you know, not that we have a lot of those, but we all do, you know, and that's what we're talking about today. It's a lot, but I think that that's where I, I get my energy from, um, especially at a startup. And that was one of the things that really excited me was being able to take my experience and then build and shape this organization and this company based on the experience that, I, that I've seen. So I think the difference really is just resources, to be honest, and speed of decision-making. So at bigger companies, obviously, it's like decision-making by committee. It takes a lot longer to get things done. And here it's like, you have an idea, go and do it. If it's a good, you know, we'll figure out whether it works or not. If it doesn't, we'll pivot, we'll do something else. And if it does, like, yay for you, we'll ride it. So I, I like that agility too. I'm really kind of someone that's just like, stick and move. If you have an idea, go and do it. And then we'll like figure it out later. So, you know, Salesforce wasn't always such a big company. When I joined, it was 1500 people. It's still bigger than what Plan Hut is. But I was there for a lot of the growth. And I, I saw a lot and I experienced a lot. And a lot of those learnings I'm taking with me. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's also just uh, cool to hear, obviously, that it's nice to be at smaller companies where you do have that agility, like you said, and not as much red tape when it comes to corporations and then having to go through committees, like you said, to get approval on things. But it's not easy being a CS leader at a CS software. And it's also not easy, like you said, in a smaller organization where you might not have all the resource that you would love right away and you're still growing that team. And I'd love to know when you're Working in customer success is definitely not easy, like I said, but you're working as a CS leader at a CS software company, which is just next levels. So what is the hardest part about being the VP of CS at PlanHat? Uh, yeah, I mean, I can probably do a whole podcast on this alone. Honestly, um, there's a lot more good and great than not. But I would say for me personally, it's like imposter syndrome <laughs> in a big way. Like Definitely. I have a depth of customer success experience. Obviously it's why I got the job and that's, and that's great. But the expectation that you uh, know everything and that everything you do is like the best and the right. And I'm learning from my customers. I'm learning from my prospects. I'm learning from every churn situation, just like all of you. And so I am also you know, I have a lot to bring. I have a lot of knowledge, best practice, but I'm also learning and growing and just having that feeling like, do I need to be the best at everything? Do I need to know everything? Or is it okay to learn from others? And, and I think it, obviously it's okay to learn from others, but in my head, is there an expectation that I am all of that, you yeah. know? Yeah, the imposter syndrome is real. I could definitely relate to that. It's real. For, in general, it's real. And then it's on steroids if you're like the VP of CS for a CS. I was about to say, exactly. It must be on steroids. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> coming into a new role is always exciting. So let's talk about the positives of that too, because you're into this new role. And for all our CS listeners out there today that are also maybe starting a new role or a new CS leadership role, what's maybe one piece of advice you can give or what should he or she do first in that new role? Yeah, I mean, I think you hear this a lot. So it's nothing groundbreaking, but massive like listening tour. I really am trying to do a ton of just listening and learning 
And so like listening to my customers, listening to my colleagues, listening to my team members, my customers are so great at giving feedback and just really taking that feedback and putting, you know, some thought around actioning of it. So I think it's, there's a lot of the listening, but I think there's also like, I am very execution focused. And so I'm like, I have to do something with all this stuff that I'm like learning and listening about. But then as you know, like the list gets longer than you could ever imagine. So trying to take that list and pick off some quick wins and kind of prioritize it. So I kind of have this matrix of value and level of effort. So if it's like low level of effort and high value, that's 100% my quick wins. And if it's high level of effort, high value, then that goes on like my strategic priorities that I will like get to and build a plan for and whatnot. And if it's like high level of effort, low value, then it's like a nice to have. And if I can pick it off, great, but it's not going to be on my top of my priority list. So it's like listening and then prioritizing the unlimited list of things you have to do. Yeah, it's so funny hearing how everyone prioritizes tasks because I think that that's like the key to being a leader as well, especially if you're new in a leadership role. It's like you really will have a bucket list of things that will never stop growing. It will never stop. No matter how many you take off, it'll always be more added on to that list. But prioritization is so, so important. And I think also it's like, like you just said, quick wins, like get some stuff in, but then also break down those bigger tasks, like those daunting tasks into possible quicker, smaller wins, because that'll help massively as you as you join a new organization. But I do want to jump into now our topic today, which is, is all churn bad? Because in the CS space and in being a CSM, you're always fearing churn, or you're always like, oh, I can't let this customer go, or, you know, I need to firefight or I need to be able to churn mitigate all these accounts, but maybe it's not all bad, which is what I want to talk to you about today. And uh, the first thing I kind of want to talk about is when should a SaaS or tech company start monitoring and measuring churn? When's the best time to start with all of that? It's an interesting question when you should start monitoring it versus when you should start being able to identify signals, let's say, right? So monitoring churn, you really shouldn't call a customer churned, let's say, in my opinion, and I'm sure there's people who differ, until after a customer has been onboarded. So once they're like up and running with your solution and they're like in it, if they stop using it and they leave you, to me, that's like churn. But if they never got off the ground and up and running, so if they leave you in like the onboarding phase or the implementation phase, is that really considered churn or is that just considered like a bad fit? Ooh, you you almost maybe want to add a, another question here then. But what if they onboarded and then they didn't actually use anything and then they churned? Is that considered a bad fit? Well, so again, I guess it depends on what your exit criteria are for your onboarding phase. So why would you let someone out of onboarding if they're not actually using it? what is your actual exit criteria for the onboarding phase then? Like to me, actual exit of onboarding is X number of users, X, you know, you've been trained. Like if you've done all the things to get a customer out of onboarding, then after that, it should be engaging, optimizing, value add, et cetera, et cetera. I'm talking like the technical term churn. Like you can have customers leave you. We have customers, like even in the pandemic, they sign a contract and they never actually kick off because their business went under and they couldn't pay their invoices. Like to me, that's not like churn. That's just sucky scenario. But that's, that's just, just I was gonna say that's a situationary issue. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> 
right, right, right. I really think, and, and uh, I know we'll get into it, but like, that's just like, to me, like the formal definition of churn. But I think that you can start identifying churn indicators. I mean, obviously, if they buy, they buy. But if you're selling and you haven't identified success criteria, business outcomes in the sales cycle, if you don't have the right people engaged in the sales cycle. So like we have a customer right now, just as an example, the people that are implementing weren't the people that bought it. And so, and I'm sure there's plenty of people that that's the scenario. And so in that sales cycle, should you not actually try to talk to the people that are going to use the solution so that you sell to the right people? So that's why I'm like, these are to me. And then when you're doing the sales handover, these are questions that you should be telling the CS team, hey, heads up, we sold to this person. They're not going to be the users. These people are. And then the CS team can be like, okay, then I need to resell value to those people as a starting. So that's why I think like churn indicators can start in the sales cycle, even though you end up with a successful sale. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, wow. So early. Some people start thinking, oh, it's after six months or maybe it's right before renewal or something. But yeah, even as early as, as a sales cycle, like you said, but um, how do you identify churn then? Is it by ARR loss? Is it logo loss? Is it downgrade? Like obviously everyone's kind of using a, a different way of identifying churn these days, but what's the best practice of identifying churn? If you're just talking about churn, meaning customers leaving you, then it's attrition, right? It's just loss of revenue, loss of logo. If you're talking about impact to your business, then it's net revenue retention. So it's kind of the loss, but then the gain and where do you end up? Like uh, obviously, ideally you end up with more gain than loss and then that's your net retention, which is why, you know, I think not all churn is bad because some customers are kind of costing you more than they're giving you. And then, you know, it ends up eating into your business model holistically. But if you're just looking at pure churn, to me, it's straight up your attrition numbers. Like when I was at Salesforce, we had metrics around attrition. Like we had um, forecasting just for portfolio attrition, which is strictly logos leaving. Or, or like uh, logos leaving or downgrading, right? I had this suite of products and now I only want like this one. That's still, to me, attrition. Yeah. So it's any attrition across the account, whether it means a lost logo in its entirety, whether it means a downgrade, whether it means, yeah, any sort of attrition should be classified as churn, which I think most people can relate to because that's probably how they're tracking their business metrics as well. Like you said, there's there's just attrition, but then there's also net retention. But we'll we'll get into that in a little bit. But before we get into that, what metrics are you actually using to track churn? I think you already kind of indicated it earlier about lagging indicators and what sort of data also are you using to possibly identify churn earlier? You also mentioned the sales cycle. So I'm curious, what, what are your, your lagging indicators and also what where do you identify them? So lagging indicators is really just too late, right? So don't identify, like, don't look at your lagging indicators for churn because if you're looking at invoices paid or renewals or whatnot, the customer's pretty much gone if, if you're identifying it then, right? So at PlanHat, we have an automated health score 
and we have a CSM health score. So it's a combination of quantitative and qualitative. So the the automated health score is based on like system generated product usage and adoption, NPS scores, all the things that you would expect that could be system generated. And so those are, you know, automated indicators. Customer engagement, I think, is also a big one. And then there's the CSM score, which actually drives the health score as well. So if your CSM score goes down, your health score goes down, there's a correlation there. But that is more of the the qualitative human, okay, this executive sponsor never shows up for a call. I schedule meetings, these customers never show up. I give the customers X number of tasks for onboarding and they don't do them. Or this company just got acquired and the company that acquired them has a different solution. So this is a risk for like, so there, I think there are actually a lot of indicators. And I actually think, again, they can happen throughout the life cycle, but it's making sure you flag them early enough so you can do something about it. That's what's really important. So again, in the sales cycle, when you hand it over, I feel like you could theoretically hand over a red account. I think that's probably a taboo topic. Wow, that is taboo. I was about to say, isn't a customer super excited and like ready to start with your software when they've just closed? I mean, yes, but if you think of like that customer fit, two things. Number one, you can always oversell a solution. And then when it comes over to CS, if you can't deliver on what was sold, you're red before you even implement, in my opinion. And I guess it depends on what you consider red, but to get to me, Red is just a flag that says someone needs to take extra care here. Like it's not saying this is red, we're going to churn, but it's saying warning, check, take extra care here because this was sold and this is what we can actually do for them. Yeah. But also I, that just makes me think of like when maybe you've somehow in the sales cycle, someone has said, oh yeah, we'll build this feature for you. And then I, you're so right. That could automatically be a red customer because you're promising something. And if you say within, let's say, six months and it doesn't happen, that's instantly a red customer right there. And that's almost, like you said, handing over a red customer because something was promised to be built or to be implemented or to be done. And then it's, yeah, a misalignment. And it's not even a misalignment of the product they're being sold, but a promise that they were being sold. Totally. And I bet if you speak to... 100 CSMs, 50 of them would say yes. And like, <laughs> would anyone ever say, I just got handed a red account in the sales handover process? That's <laughs> like, that does sound a bit taboo even when I say it out loud, but I think it can totally happen. And it's also that customer fit. I think it was like Marcus Wrench who, who posted something about, it also depends on where your company is in their size. So like smaller, earlier customers are pretty eager just to get new logos. And they'll almost say like, yes, we can do that. Yes, we can do that. We'll build that. We'll build that. We'll build that. But it's not really a natural fit. And so I think you can say you're going to do something, but then if it takes your product roadmap in an entirely different direction than when you're, what you really should be focusing on for the rest of your customers, is that really the right sale? In which case, do you give that customer the attention they need or you let them churn? Then maybe it's not bad churn, which is exactly exactly what we're talking about today. (laughs) But before we kind of move away from this topic, you did mention that you guys have like qualitative and quantitative ways of measuring your health, which is great. And I think that's a big a win or a bigger way that you can look at health scoring, not just data and not just, you know, how a CSM feels about an account. 
what are you guys actually seeing as a leading indicator or which one actually tells you the customer is going to churn first? I'm curious. Is it the quantitative data, meaning the usage and, you know, paying invoices on times, all of that? Or is it actually the CSM score that leads you to believe that the customer might be churning? It's a great question, but truthfully, like they're connected. So the, the CSM score drives the health score. So it's hard to like disengage those two because our health score is calculated from our CSM score in part. But the way that we track kind of what I call quote unquote red accounts is two or more factors, let's say. So those factors could come from the health score being low, or it could be from like unpaid invoices, or it could be from like lack of engagement. The right people are not in these meetings, which is a CSM score, or MPS is trending, that's your quantitative. So it, it's not a straightforward answer, sorry, Annika, but it is It is kind of an it depends answer. <laughs> yeah, but that's fine. It means that both are equally as important, to be honest. It sounds like you need to have both to be able to holistically say a customer is going to churn or a customer is super healthy. Yeah. But one of the things that I will say, sorry, just about the like CSM score, because it is subjective, obviously, I think you really need to give your CSMs guidelines on what it means to put a customer at a one, a two, a three, a four, and a five, and have everyone aligned to that definition. Because I had CSMs who like, all of a sudden their their score goes down to a three. And I'm like, why? Well, we had a really bad meeting and the customer was really pissed off. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't think that's a reason to put them in like risk if you had one bad meeting, because what are you going to do about it is more important than the meeting itself, right? And so I think just very clearly, whatever your definitions are, if you're going to have a subjective, qualitative measure for health, make sure that everyone has that same definition of what they're putting in as a five, a four, a three, two. So true. That's so true. Even though it is qualitative, you need to make sure that it's measured correctly across your whole portfolio of accounts. Otherwise, yeah, one of your CSMs might have a super healthy looking portfolio and the other one might have a super unhealthy when really both are probably healthy, but using different ways of putting in that qualitative data, right. like you said. Right. But what are... Well, and also our... Sorry. It's sorry. okay to continue. Because <laughs> our scores um, launch automated activities, playbooks, etc. So if you're not having a consistent way of running these, these scores and these metrics, then you're not actually actioning the right things. So that's another reason why it has to be important. Cool, cool. And what are some ways that companies can now mitigate churn? Because obviously, maybe you've now identified these lagging indicators, or you at least have a health score that's telling you, hey, this is a red customer, there's a problem. Like, can we actually mitigate churn these days? Or is there really no way for us to avoid it? And we should just accept that some churn is not bad. In my mind, there is always ways to mitigate churn, always. And so even though I'm saying not all churn is bad churn, every churn should be taken to heart and taken seriously in that even if this was like, okay, I'm glad they churned because they were uh, a lot of work for us. We were a lot of work for them. It wasn't a good fit. We're moving on. We're all happy about it. You can still learn from it and get better because of it. I just want to say that as a sidebar, like every churn scenario can be mitigated, I think, especially if you get the indicators early enough that you have runway to like recoup from it. I think a lot of times people think, ah, 
this customer's churning, customer success needs to fix this. And I firmly believe, and we've just talked about it, mitigating churn is a company-wide effort. And that's why I'm saying like, your salespeople have a massive responsibility for churn, whether it's selling the right thing up front or reselling it down the road. Product has a massive part to play. Everyone that touches the customer, in my opinion, has a massive part to play. And so I think while, and it's interesting because like you were saying, you know, yes, I'm, I'm relatively new at Plan Hat, but one of the first processes that I put in place not that long ago was, and I hate the term, by the way, so if anyone who's listening has a better term, please ping me and tell me the, the quote unquote red account process, which is, again, flagging accounts that are at risk through the things we just talked about. But then we now have a weekly leadership meeting where every leader in the company is attending to go through at least like two accounts on a weekly basis that is indicating at risk and not necessarily churn, but like flags that we can get ahead of so that we're not having churn. And, and, you know, it's funny because out of the leadership team, we're like, does product, you know, does, does our CPO really need to join because he's busy building the product and that sort of thing. I'm like, well, yes, because part of the issues of churn is product. So he needs to hear why our customers might want to churn, like, or why there's risk and whatnot. And same as head of sales, by the way, he's there, he is engaged. He is like in those meetings, so happy to help. And I think that that's a big deal to like have your whole leadership team across functions, hear what's going on with your customers. And everyone is chiming in to say like, have you tried this? What about this? And then the CSM is there just to like soak up the learning and the lessons. And then they take the actions from that meeting. They might not own the execution of every single action, but they own running that play. They run making sure that product is doing something, sales is doing something, marketing is doing something. So like we have a playbook with multiple steps and multiple actions and they run the playbook, but other people obviously own each individual task. So I don't even know if that answered your question, but that's what we, that's what we found. <laughs> no, but that's a, that's a great way to mitigate churn, which is what I was like asking is like, get everyone around a table, like you said, and not just the CSM team, because the CSM team can only do so much. They can only speak to a customer so much. They can only let the customer know that they're looking into it so much. Or, you know, it is a company-wide concern. It's a company-wide effort. It's a company-wide initiative to really make sure that these customers do not leave you. And it's key that every stakeholder in the company looks at, yeah, the top 10 list of unhealthiest customers or the most likely to not renew or anything like that. And it's like, do you then decide, hey, yes, we need to put all our effort into fixing their, their product issues or all the effort into making sure that they're resold the value of our product? Or do you let them go? Which is kind of leading to, is all churn bad? Let's say we come to that meeting and now, yeah, we're, we're noticing that some customers are going to leave us. Should it be okay? to let go of non-ICP customers or bad fit customers, or should you keep them? Like, do you keep those difficult customers that are hard to please? I don't think all churn is bad, but I will say even in that meeting, not that long ago, we were talking about a customer who was potentially churning. It was a scenario where I was like, this one might be not, you know, not that bad because again, they were smaller. They were taking up a lot of our efforts. It was probably not the right fit to begin with. 
for me as a CS leader too, where you feel the pressure of the churn number, as an example, I looked around the table at all my peers and said, are we all okay with this customer churning? And every head was nodding. And I was like, I will personally do whatever I can do to keep this customer. But as long as I know that I have your backs, that we're all okay, if even after all what we offer, they still churn, then I'm okay doing what I need to do to try and save this customer. I, I think as CS leaders and CSMs, like it's it's a personal affront if a customer leaves. It is. It's, it's almost offensive. Don't leave me. It's breaking up. Honestly, every single time a customer leaves you, it's like you're in so many relationships. Like, why are you leaving me? Like, stop. Like, I love you. I Stay. Know. I know. <laughs> I know. And then if they don't tell you why, you're like, was it something I did? Was like, it was it my fault? Well, did I do something wrong? <laughs> <laughs> totally. No, I'm sure it wasn't totally. you. It must have been me. Tell me what's wrong. <laughs> yeah, but I, but I do think like back to your question. I, I mean, and that's just a scenario. Obviously, like everyone should do everything they can to save every customer. No question about it. But if, at some point, you get to a point where like you're both putting in more than you're getting out, and it, then it's okay, you know, to come to a mutual agreement. Or sometimes it's a one way agreement. It doesn't matter. But Obviously, if it's it's easier to churn a smaller customer than one of your bigger ones, but I think it's just also about having some guardrails in place to say like I think it's okay to say it's okay. But I do think you got to put in the effort like um for what it's worth and this sounds so trite, I get it. Empathy goes a long long way. Like I can't even stress the value of empathy in customer success and in our roles. I hear you. That must suck so bad. I will do everything I can. If I were in your position, I'd be super annoyed as well. Just empathy. Yeah. Just relating and being able to understand that, yeah, we're all human. We all face these issues. We all have problems internally that's going to cause this problem, or maybe the tool's not working the way we thought it would exactly. And yeah, it's just understanding that and just saying, hey, I get it. It's as easy as that. And I want to fix it for you just as much as you want it to be fixed. Yeah. But I will say, Annika, and I'm in this situation, it's not a one-way thing either. So if your customer isn't coming to the table with what they also will do to help, I never think it's one side or the other. You know, like, again, situations are different, but you have to put a plan together with your customer, back to health plan, whatever you want, where it's like, okay, if you commit to this. I commit to this, then let's regroup in a week, let's regroup in two weeks and see if we're back on the on the track. And if we're not, is it because you're not stepping in? Is it because I'm not stepping in? And then if we both step in, we both put our best foot forward here and at the end, we're still not meeting your needs, then we can agree to go our separate ways. But let's at least try both of us to put our best foot forward here. It's interesting that you say that because yeah, a lot of people think churn is just as a CSM, you have to go fish the customer out of the deep end of the water and do everything you can to to save them and make sure that they love you and they come back to you and all these things. But you're right. There has to be an energy or effort made from from the customer side to really see the value and, and want to stay and want to be able to work on this together, which is, yeah really, really key as well. One more question about your health scoring. I know we kind of talked about this already and you already talked about different metrics that you do track in your health score, but are there any top things 
that you track in your health score that identify unhealthy customers or customers that might churn? I know you mentioned a lot about CSM sentiment and things, but are there any specific metrics that you've noticed that really show immediately, okay, this customer is definitely going to churn? So, you know, again, it's like the quantitative versus the qualitative. I would say hands down customers that stop engaging (laughs) are like big red, big red flags or like your, your main decision maker slash sponsor leaves and the rest of the team is like not super psyched or, or whatnot, or someone comes in that like used a different tool. Those are like qualitative, I suppose. But I also think um, trend analysis is super helpful. So it's not just like, you can't just look at a point in time, like those are all point in time situations. But even like, oh my God, this customer has a lot of support tickets right now, they're definitely going to churn. Well, no, not necessarily. Like, it's just, is this just a customer that loves our support team? Are they constantly, you know, are they are they a high support reliant customer? Or is it peaking and then it'll come back down and like, oh, we saw this around this time last year because it's tax season, like as an example, right? And so so seeing the trends and understanding the trends, I think are also super important to indicate, does this require an all hands on deck? Or is this just something like, oh, good to know that this is happening, but we'll, we'll do what we can and bring them back down. And it's not necessarily churn risk, but it is, hey, reach out to the customer and be a little more proactive with them. Definitely. And you just led to something which is really important as well is like not all things like bad indicators mean that you need to definitely have a a meeting with this client. They might just be support heavy or it actually might tell you, hey, maybe we should update our documentation because they're just asking our support team a million questions. And maybe, maybe it's a bad on our part and not a bad that the customer is just asking all these questions. But yeah, so that's definitely something that we see normally as well. Awesome. So I think we can go on about churn all day, all night and talk about it again and again. But I do have one more question and then I want to jump into our quick fire round. And you mentioned that churn can happen as early as in sales cycles, but does a bad onboarding lead to churn? What do you think about that? How do you mitigate churn from the very start of, let's say, the customer journey? So, I mean, you now know that I believe churn can happen from the sales cycle. So obviously it can happen in onboarding too. But I think that, you know, onboarding is is by far, and, and I'm sure like everyone says it, but like onboarding is by far the most important stage of the customer life cycle outside of the sale itself. And I think that, but that can be, that actually can be relatively easily mitigated if you, you know, again, first impressions are super important getting the right people, join the kickoff call, setting the the proper scope, expectations, success metrics, like all the things that a good onboarding plan would do. I think also just telling it straight to your customer, not sugarcoating things, I think goes a long way, especially in the onboarding. Yes, we can do that, but maybe not in the onboarding phase. Why don't we make that phase two and let's get you up and running with this first and then we'll do that after this. You know, So again, it's setting expectations. And I also think in the onboarding phase, you can't underscore the importance of building personal relationships. Like remember, these are new relationships. You have to you have to build them and cultivate them. And so I think people don't spend enough time getting to know people as individuals, even in that onboarding stage. Do you have kids? Where do you live? Kind of trying to connect on a personal level because the goal is that you are going to have a long-term relationship with this person. So do you ever like 
go on a date with someone and not even start with the small stuff and just jump right into like, do you want to have kids one day? Like, no, you want to like, get to know them. <laughs> and like, you, know, <laughs> you want to get to know them. You don't yeah. just like jump right into business, right? You're like, you need to like, ha- get to know people. And I, I you need to build a rapport. You need to actually make make sure that they feel that they can really trust you as yeah. a trusted advisor. Yeah. <laughs> and trust them with time. Right. Right, right. So I think I think that piece really doesn't get talked about enough. I think like if you build a personal relationship, like if I said to you, like Annika, I want to get to know you. Like, tell me, like, what are your career goals? Like, and how can I help you achieve those goals as we work together in the long run? I think it's just getting to know each other is is a big part of it. I know it's super fluffy, but. Aside from all the stuff that you can read in all the onboarding books, which I'm reading now, actually, Donna Weber's Onboarding Matters, which is amazing. Yeah, it's a combination of both. And it's why CSMs continue to have a job today. It's why technology will never replace everything that a CSM does because of that. Totally. Do want to be very conscious of time. And I want to wrap us up with our quick fire questions, which I'm going to challenge you to try to answer these next few questions in one sentence or so. I know it's going to be tough, but let's try it. The first question I have is, what do you think is next for the CS industry? <laughs> well, I kind of have to say it, but I do believe it to be true, which is one of the reasons I have this job, is um, reliance on technology and data to be more predictive and proactive. That was good. One sentence. Oppressive. Okay, let's move on to the next question. What sort of tool set does your CS team use, obviously outside of Plan Hat? What other tools are you guys using? I mean, everything happens in Plan Hat, Annika. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. But I'm guessing you guys probably use Slack or something else as well. Yes, yes. So yes, we obviously we use Plan Hat, we use Slack. I am a huge fan of Slack, especially for remote teams. And um, oh, Intercom, like there's, you know, those support chat things as well. So awesome. And what sort of compensation do you think a CSM should get? Should it be just a base salary? Or should it be a base salary plus a commission. Okay, this is not a one sentence answer. So I'll just say it really, it really depends on like, how big your company is where you are in terms of like budgets and funding and things like that. I am a firm believer in uh, pay for performance and scorecards and that sort of thing. I really don't like the term commission for a CSM because that means that your CSMs are selling. Um, but I do believe in some form of bonus structure if your company is at the place where it can it can you know has the budgets to do so that's a long sentence we could probably do a podcast on that one too (laughs) we could do a podcast on so many things that we just talked about today to be honest there's like little bits that we could keep talking about but last question of this podcast is what is your favorite part of being a CSM or working in customer success? Oh my God, it's problem solving. It's like learning, growing and problem solving. I think that that comes down to it's just like helping our customers succeed where they like they, they give you a scenario and you just have to like help them figure a way to success. And then like seeing them be successful is so rewarding. That was more than a sentence, sorry. <laughs> It's okay. It's okay. I love that too. I think that's the empathy part of every customer success manager. They just want to see their customers succeed, which is a big reason why people do customer success. But thank you so much, Jennifer, for taking the time to chat today. I know you're obviously busy, but if our listeners do have any other questions or want to find you, where where's the best place to get a hold of you? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. It's the best way. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer, for your time. Really enjoyed it. We're hiring. <laughs>
I feel like I have to like plug that in. We're hiring. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Customer Success Channel podcast today. We hope you learned something new to take back to your team and your company. If you found value in our podcast, please make sure to give us a positive review and make sure you subscribe to our channel as we release new podcasts every month. Also, if you have any topics that you would like me to discuss in the future, or you would like to be a guest on the podcast, please feel free to reach out. All my contact details are in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and tune in next time for more on customer success.